Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With. Conversations with your favourite theatre actors and creatives. Hello, I'm Mikey Worrell. My guest this week was working as an extra on the film Moulin Rouge in Australia 20 years ago when the director created the part of La Petite Princess just for her. She used her paycheck from that film to come to the UK where she's worked across television, film and theatre. At the start of this year, she was in the Jamie Lloyd Company production of Cyrano de Bergerac at the Playhouse Theatre in the West End, which won the Olivier Award for Best Revival at the weekend. She was meant to be part of the show's New York transfer, but that was cancelled because of the pandemic. Instead, she found herself shielding at home in the UK with her husband Gareth, and creating a web series for children called Pirate and Parrot. Here's my conversation with Kieran Estamel. Let's start at the beginning. You were you mm-hmm. were three when you started dancing. Yes. So was that something your parents wanted you to do, or was that something that you wanted to do? No, God, no, no, not at all. My parents had no interest in me doing anything artistic. There was a TV show on that, I guess it was a little bit like the Mickey Mouse Club, but it was an Australian TV show called um, Young Talent Time and Kylie Minogue and Danny Minogue were in it as, you know, young kids. Uh And I just used to love, 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 love that show and always wanted to dance. So nagged my mother repeatedly to take me to dance classes. And so, yeah, that was how that happened. It was sort of, I don't know. I mean, even now, like if you put a bit of music on and I have a, you know, a boogie, I feel really deeply emotional, like it, it like a like very, very joyful. So I mm. think I've kind of just always loved it. Mm. Is that from music or is that from the physical movement of it? I think it's the physical movement of it, but I think it's also because I met so much discrimination because of my dwarfism when I was a young child wanting to train that even now when I do like a dance class, there's a huge freedom and very much a sense of I'm being allowed to do this. So there's something still very um, uh, liberating about it, I think. Mm. I read that, I mean, this was Wikipedia, so this may not be true, um, but I read that it took you until you were eight years old to find a teacher who actually mm-hmm. treated you as a proper dancer. Yep. As a child, how on earth did you deal with, with that? I mean, how did you feel and how it must have been mm. incredibly frustrating? Well, I'm very lucky, I think, that, I mean, my parents have different worldviews. My father is very big picture. Mum was very detailed. And you know, mum had sort of, I guess, as being a woman in Australia and um, going to university and and having to sort of on a certain level fight for women's rights. Um, You know, she had been offered a scholarship to study to be a doctor, um, but the scholarship would have just covered educational costs, not living expenses. And in Australia at the time, well, you didn't have women doctors. So she ended up having to take a different scholarship to become a biology teacher and forgo any kind of medical career. So she'd kind of had her own sort of struggles to overcome. But I think because women's lib had sort of happened while she was at university and growing up, she was very good at helping me unpick 
a lot of the discrimination and kind of, um, I guess, take the power out of it in some ways by kind of analysing it and realising that a lot of this is actually other people's baggage. I mean, humans have this terrible, terrible habit of trying to work out their own shit on other people's bodies. And I find that really interesting, you know, whether it be on a really basic level level of, of, you know, being jealous or comparing yourself to others or having a bit of a snicker because somebody's overweight or judging an outfit or, you know, if it's, you know, that but kind of at, at, a, at a bigger level of discrimination, it's very interesting that you realise actually all of it's about their own stuff. You know, I could walk around with a paper bag on my head and there'd be people that would still judge my appearance, having no idea what I actually looked like. And you realise, actually, your problem with me is not my problem. You're deeply working out something that's up with you that you just haven't got the insight to deal with. That doesn't make it, um, you know, easy to deal with. Like you still have the emotional and and sort of I think almost automatic response I think as well to discrimination where even if you're incredibly super confident there's still an energy involved in going that's their issue not mine so it's still tiring but I think being taught how to take the power out of it I think over the years helped me kind of not not tear my own wall down you know like if somebody was going to demoralize me they'd have to be really, you know, they'd have to work hard to do it. I wasn't going to internalise their hate, basically. And in your childhood, in, in day-to-day life, how how did that look? Was it jumping from teacher to teacher until you found the right one or was it sticking with one even though you weren't happy with it? It was moving around teacher to teacher, I think, because it's interesting, you know, in that sometimes you meet some people and you realise there's a sweet spot where there are people that are willing to open their minds and change and then there are some people you've just got to slowly back away from out of the room and it's sort of learning okay you've actually nothing here that you can teach me because you don't you're not seeing me uh for who I actually am and when I was eight I ended up with uh Miss Jan uh Miss Jan Musgrave who ran Beryl Ellis dance school and she was very much um had that wonderful teaching spirit of if you're passionate and you want to do it you deserve to be here and she was always very sparing with compliments like you knew if she said you'd done a good job you'd done a good job um but yeah I think sometimes that's quite a rare quality and I think particularly with dance although it's with you know many different fields finding somebody that can recognise your talent or skills when you're packaged a bit differently is sometimes a rare thing to, to, to find. Like I think, I mean, actually, you know, I, I see it in our, like, you know, modern life now that you realise that, you know, we don't live in a meritocracy, that somebody could be brilliant, but if they don't look the way people want them to acceptably look them being brilliant sort of just brings them up to being acceptable you know so I think that was kind of what that that experience taught me 
on the flip side to that though do you think that there is a power in being different in being unique yeah if you harness it and you own it definitely in that i wouldn't trade any of my negative life experiences at all in that they've brought me to where i am but also the struggles with being different and you know all humans are on some level of different it's very enlightening because it actually shows you what the flaws are within the system and it gives you a slightly outsider perspective which i think can give you a clearer view of what's actually really happening so from that point of view i see it as um really valuable and really really powerful as well as you see where you want to make the changes and where the changes need to be made that doesn't mean it's an easy journey um but it's like i really do think when i meet people their reaction to my physical appearance it's the truth of who they are and what's going on inside them and it's a real um barometer and and gauge for whether or not they're an open-minded good person or whether they're actually a really limited toolbox so is that in terms of the micro expression that you see or is that in terms of something more obvious and more vocal Oh, I'd say more obvious and vocal. Like I'm actually probably not as judgmental as I sound in that I get such a vast array of expon- uh, responses to my simply being in a public place. And that is include I include being on stage or performing and and doing, you know, just human roles exploring the human condition that I, uh, you know, we still live in a society where an audience is a little bit like why is she there? Oh, you know, it's some kind of tick box exercise and then they realize, "Oh no, she's just a person." exploring the human condition which is ultimately why I became an actor but i'm so used to getting responses that to be honest the only ones i really bother clocking in terms of you know passing any judgment about are the ones that are kind of overtly rude or giving something away about you know the person that is judging me um i'll pick up the odd micro you know maybe the micro adjustment or something like that but actually look you know when somebody is obviously visibly very different i can see that there'd be a little maybe natural micro adjustment and like i remember meeting my first uh, little person as a child and how uncomfortable it was for me to be eye to eye with somebody talking because for me that was such a foreign experience i was like oh god it's a bit intense actually being at the same height as somebody and staring into their face oh that's a bit full on <laughs> um you know so there's a point at which i think that you know there's a natural human kind of oh okay how do i how do i negotiate the situation versus you know and and unfortunately it happens often enough that i'll actually get a vocal or rude response that i'm like aha you're the person that i'm reserving that judgment for you're a terrible human being that's using this opportunity to power trip and and try and restore some sense of self-esteem in yourself that's clearly very very lacking and it is not my issue so yeah it's it's that kind of thing i find it quite astounding that here we are in 2020 and that's still a thing oh my gosh it's amazing to me like and i love that it's still and i mean it happens a lot like if you went out with me you'd be i mean my husband whose average height is still um getting used to it and in a way we've talked about how we never want to actually get used to it because i don't ever want to just accept that that is somehow oh that's just the reality it's actually incredibly enlightening to realize how easy it is for a human being to dehumanize another human being 
and how dangerous that is because as a person with dwarfism, I see that all the time being done to me. And it's why as an actor and performer, representation to me is so vitally important and why I very much care about the roles that I'm cast in that in some way they need to be exploring the human condition and what it is to be human, not simply reducing me to some kind of reductive moment of discrimination or just reflecting the discrimination as if it were, well, that's just what people do and that's how people like them are treated. Yeah, it's um, tough, but I actually wouldn't swap it for ignorance and not having this experience. Okay. One thing that struck me about reading everything you've done You've, I don't want to say the word effortlessly because I'm sure you've worked very, very hard, but yeah. you've man- you've jumped between TV and theatre in a way that a lot of people struggle to do. Mm. Um, Moulin Rouge, you, you went in to be an extra in that film mm-hmm. and they created a part for you. I want to talk about that in a minute. But just for context, tell me where you were in life at that time, what you were doing for work and, and what your situation was. Um, I had just finished high school, so I was going into my first year of university. It was the summer break. So we had three months off and um, I was looking for a day job while I was to help pay for uni. And really fortunately, where I lived in Sydney, Fox Studios had just built their massive film studio in Sydney. And this is where you realise that actually as Talented and hardworking as you might believe yourself to be, there is always an element of chance. So Fox Studios built this massive multi-million dollar studio, a 15-minute drive away from my front door. Um, They'd been filming Babe, Pig in a City 2, which was a sequel to Babe 1. Um, Star Wars was going to be filmed there and Moulin Rouge had moved in. I had signed up as an extra over the summer just to earn cash for uni but I also thought actually it's a really good opportunity to just see things you know like I'm actually being an extra is really it's hard work like it's tedious and you're you're treated Mm. like you know portable props but for a uni student earning whatever the daily rate was back then I can't even remember still living at home so I wasn't paying rent I was like great you know couple of weeks solid work rock up get fed do the job go home this is perfect and I remember handing in my CV to the casting director who was looking after the the extras specifically and my CV had dance training and that I was studying theatre at university and that I'd been in a few plays and stuff at uni and done this that and the other and she said to me oh you've got um quite an extensive dance background, I'll mention you to the director. Fortunately, I just smiled and said, thanks, that'd be great. But of course, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you're in charge of the extras, like, as if you're going to, like, that's Lumen's not going to, like, care. That's just, you know. Anyway, she sat next to him at lunch, mentioned me to him, and I was given within 24 hours a dance audition. I rocked up to do the dance audition and the choreography I was being given was like really simple. I think because, you know, I'm a little lady, disproportionate body, people have no idea. They always imagine it's going to be hilarious or weird when, you know, a woman with dwarfism dances, but 
I really like my dancing. I'd totally watch me. Um, <laughs> and the Cory was a little bit basic. And I said, can I, can I just improv for you? And they went, oh, okay. So um, they played some music and I improved. And then the next day I was on set. And then a few weeks later I was on set in another costume and up the back of scene. And, and then I was being given lines to learn and I was being directed by Baz Luhrmann directly. And I'm like, this is a bit more than being an extra. This is a bit, I'm, I'm having to come into rehearsals and, and, learn dance moves and I'm actually being given printouts as a script. So I phoned my extras agency at the time and said, oh, um, hi, I said, um, I think we might need to renegotiate my contract. Like I'm going to work every day, but, you know, I've got dance rehearsals and I've got this and I've got the other happening. And, and the extras agent was like, oh, darling, I know that you think that you're like, you know, you're probably doing something very serious but you really are just an extra and I'm like I don't know I'm being given lines and and Baz's wife Catherine Martin really likes me so she keeps making like costumes for me that she wants to basically get in the scene which is why I'm then getting brought back in and and given a new dress to wear and and anyway this woman just did not believe me and then the producer ended up phoning going oh Kirana we're about to issue you a new contract because you're now you know like a an actual actress in the piece and um you know I ring the agent back I'm like no no they said they're going to give me a new contract and she's like oh darling I know that you think that you're an actress <laughs> and, and you know and so I had this bizarre moment where I ended up ringing the union in Australia and saying um I've landed a role but my agent doesn't believe me what do I do and they were like, well, if they're issuing you a new contract, it can just go direct to you. Like, just just tell them to send it to you and you can handle it. And so that was sort of like my professional initiation, which also then meant I had money to pay for university. I paid to get a car modified so that I could learn to drive. And then uh, what was left over from the wages I used to come to England for the first time. So, I mean, that film on that level changed my life in that I was sort of had a moment of being financially liberated. I was hanging out with the dancers. I was learning choreography. Um, do you know what that was like? That was that film because, I mean, it's also in the day, like, so 1999, 2000, the tech that we were working with, like they built everything. So I went to work and I was in a sound studio that was ginormous that basically had all of France in it and can-can dancers and it was – so I was in the world. I was in the world so much so that the men who were extras in the prostitute scenes had to be reminded by the professionals that actually the dancers and actresses weren't real-life prostitutes, so they needed to be respectful and in between takes not expect – that kind of back, like, because they got so caught up in the um, the world themselves. Because it looked, I mean, it looked so. I mean, it was real. It was three hundred and sixty degrees. It was, it was. You walked from, you know, I drove fifteen minutes from my house to eighteen hundreds France, and it was how I imagine it must be for Doctor Who's assistants. You know, when they get in the TARDIS and they go somewhere and then they come back to the same time and place that they left and people are like, oh, where have you been? And they're like, 
no one could understand it. It was like that for me at home. I'd go home. Mum and dad are both high school teachers. You know, my friends were at uni and, and, you know, all had ordinary jobs. And I just, it was the most bizarre thing to kind of be, yeah, going to this set and this fake but brilliant world and then back to reality and realise that no one had any idea of the stuff that I'd seen or what I'd been doing. It, it was, it, yeah, it, and I think very different to when I then um, stood in for Yoda for like a day and a half as Yoda's um, uh, like stand-in so that the actors had somebody about the same height as Yoda to talk to. So I, I did a couple of stand-in days where I just, it, that was great, no makeup, no hair, no costume, just casually rock up, walk around on set and Ewan McGregor would chat away to me in front of the green screen and they were working like the complete opposite of what Moulin Rouge had been in front of just basically a gr giant green sheet. Whereas when we were filming, we were, we were in the world, you know, we, we built the Moulin Rouge and we were surrounded by it. So yeah, it was just, it was just phenomenal. Yeah. And almost um, people ask me how I felt about it. And I actually think talking to you today is almost the first time I let myself get excited because it's almost like it was so surreal. I don't think I ever emotionally connected with how amazing it was. It was like when I was 18 and I'd have the day on set and I'd go home and it'd be like, how was work? And you'd go, yeah, 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 it was good. Because I, I just had no way to communicate what was happening and I think I was also... I think I was so overwhelmed as well. Like, I mean, for that to be one of your first acting jobs, that was that was really quite full on. Do you think there's an element of being in shock almost? Like, did you struggle to sleep when you'd come home? I, I mean, I just I, I just can't imagine being in that headspace where you would be in that world and then you'd come home and, and how your head would process that. Yeah, I think I must have done because I... I I mean, I remember working really hard and I remember some days after, you know, a 12 or 14 hour shoot, being in a corset all day, having danced all day. And literally at one point in a scene that required, um, it's in one of their sort of extra sections on one of the DVDs where I'm doing like split leaps and really like high energy aerobic type stuff, literally being powered by jelly beans you know, where it'd be like, oh, Kieran is out of puff. We've got to get us some more sugar. <laughs> you know, So I'd be there sort of, you know, noshing on jelly beans in between so that I kind of, you know, had another burst of energy for kind of, you know, and I remember maybe sort of eight o'clock of, of an evening filming and hitting silly hour and with Caroline O'Connor making up songs in the, in the waiting room and um, just sort of that kind of, um, that hitting those elements of exhaustion, you know, and also being 18 and everybody else around you is in their 20s or 30s or 40s or depending where they are in, in sort of cast and crew older. And I just, um, being so green compared to them, like, I mean, I, I remember my one speaking line that stayed in the film which is actually just the horror movie scream 
Because, no, see, this is where I go about people recognising talent. Most of the people listening to your podcast won't realise that actually I saved the day in Moulin Rouge. If I hadn't dropped that sandbag, Ewan McGregor would have been shot. That's true. Right? And it's like I never get the credit for that. <laughs> and it's just because, oh, there's the lady with dwarfism. Yeah, she saves the day. Oh, no, we won't recognise that. It's just nice that she's there. Anyway, the big scene, the shootout scene at the end where Nicole's, oh, spoiler alert, cover your ears if you've not seen it, um, but it's been out for 20 oh, years. Been, so yeah, if you've not seen say. it, it's like, <laughs> come on. Nicole's dying and um, Ewan's like, come what may, I will love you. And he's walking down the, the aisle and then um, you've got, uh, oh, I've forgotten the names of some of the characters now. It's been so long since I've seen this. But um, the guns are out and people are about to shoot because they don't want them to, the Duke doesn't want them to, to hook up. And I drop the sandbag and knock out the thug. Um but there's the moment that I did the horror stream where it's sort of like I see the baddies in the distance. And I'd never, well, I sort of suddenly for the first time in my life got stage fright because I'd never professionally acted, acted out loud in front of 400 people on a multi-million pound film set. And suddenly the director has basically said to me, who at that stage still thought she was an extra, could you scream at the top of your lungs? And I actually remember saying to Baz, who is such a lovely person, I went, I'm sorry, could I have a practice scream? And could you hold my hand? Because I've actually never said anything out loud in front of a camera or people like this. And he came up and it was lovely and he held my hand and I did a big screen, scream, sorry, and then after that you could never shut me up. Like you wouldn't know that I'd sort of had that, that fear, but I literally just in front of all of these mega film stars just suddenly went like, oh, my God, like how terrifying. You know, and you have people there like Jim Broadbent, classically trained actors and, and you know, it, it was all... Um, yeah, all really interesting and, um, yeah, just full on. And I remember John Leguizamo, who was playing Toulouse-Lautrec, who is a famous artist with dwarfism, actually said to me towards the end of filming, I hadn't even realised, I hadn't even noticed, but he came over and apologised and he said, I'm really sorry, he said, here I am playing this character with dwarfism and I'd, I had all these uh, preconceptions about what it meant to be a little person and it's only been through observing you and watching you and working with you that I've realised I was, you know, I actually had some prejudices I didn't know about and, you know, I hadn't even sort of noticed or clocked that that had been going on for him. But, yeah, you realise how important representation is because me just being there, for, for him a diffused uh, imaginary, I guess, misconceptions that he hadn't even realised he had. Because that that moving of an idea of being somebody being a theoretical concept into being a real human being is a bigger leap than it should ever be. But but it seems to exist, unfortunately, for all of us as humans to some point. I mean, what a great story. My goodness. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to talk about it. Because I'm so you know glad the you other did. thing well, the other thing that makes me laugh is I'll go on acting jobs and then sort of about nine months or a few months into the acting job, someone will go, why didn't you tell me you were in Moulin Rouge? And I'm like, well, 
what am I going to do? Like go, hi, I'm Kieran or I was in Moulin Rouge. Like it doesn't naturally come up in conversation. No, and, I suppose and, not. You know, so as much as I, I love my ego, it's, it's not like, hi guys, I'm Kieran. You may remember me from such films as. Here I've got such a unique and iconic body for me that you'd think, oh, you'd spot me wherever I showed up and go, oh, that's Kirana. But actually, um, to kind of realise that every actor's body is recontextualised given whatever the circumstances are, it's nice to know that even my body, which is so uh, uniquely mine and stands out like dog's balls in a kind of um, social setting, uh, still has sort of the ability to be that chameleon and be recontextualized into different stories. So that's actually what I think the industry needs to wrap its head around a little bit more with disabled actors. Um, is, And I think they, I mean, they're still actually to some level having to do it with anybody that's from, you know, any background other than white. Um, that's unfortunately how developmentally delayed our species currently is that yeah. I, I think, you know, we're still on the back foot with that. But, um, for example, it's very rare that a disabled actor gets employed, but then it's even rarer they're allowed to double. But everybody else in the cast is allowed to double. And there's somehow that weird sense of, oh, but I've used your body and we can't. We, and it's like, well, no, my body's got the same right to be in any set of given circumstances as anyone else's. I'm just as likely to be born in a northern town as I was Australia or, you know, wherever. But... People are, yeah, people can sometimes still be a little bit limited and that's what I desperately want to change within the industry. One thing I did see you in that I absolutely loved, back in, about six years ago, 2014, Great Britain at the National. Ah, yeah. That was the first thing I ever saw at the National. Ah. Um, I loved that play. For anyone who's listening who doesn't know about that play, that was about the phone hacking scandal with Billy Piper playing uh, the editor of a newspaper group. Um, completely fictional, of course, but fabulous production. I My character was a wheelchair user. So obviously it was a wheelchair user with dwarfism. And I have a bit of an issue with actors um, and the term that the disabled community uses is cripping up which is when a non-disabled body um, adopts a disabled body almost as if it's a costume. And the reason the disabled community have a main issue with it is because we are not yet given equal footing to audition for non-disabled roles and we very rarely still are seen for the few disabled roles that are written. So in a way, I was adopting more of a disability than I actually have. So I don't have a spinal stenosis, for example, that would maybe make me a wheelchair user. But spinal stenosis is a very common affliction within the dwarfism community. So for me to kind of go, well, what if my back was stiffer and less mobile than it is, it didn't feel like a massive leap. And I was still ticking the disability box in that I identify as a disabled woman. So for me, that wasn't as much of a political faux pas as it might be to some other people there'll be other disabled people that might listen to this podcast and go oh Kirana that was absolutely terrible that you did that um I, I subscribe to the acting is acting but where I have the issue with non-disabled actors adopting disability is just actually the biggest social picture that disabled people are never allowed to um have that social movement or that social mobility in the real world. And for me, if you tell a disabled story without a disabled person telling that story, 
you've missed the fundamental point that actually a truly disabled person isn't enabled by a non-disabled person telling the story for them. Like you've actually, you've missed the point of, of disability liberation. So it's a political issue. And I'm sorry if that means for anybody non-disabled, you dislike me because I'm telling you not to do it. But I'm saying you wouldn't do it for other circumstances where, you know, it might be a cultural infringement. And for example, I think the reason why blacking up or using yellow face is so terrible is because when something is an inherent difference or distinguishable feature within the body that is unchangeable, that individual is never allowed to not wear it themselves. So again, it's about power within a society and who is allowed to tell stories. So I don't see disability as being somehow different or special from that. That being said, if you've genuinely, if you've genuinely auditioned disabled actors and you didn't find an actor, I'd need to question whether you, you actually really properly looked. But also people often get around that kind of thing. So I've gone on the, off on a tangent on this one, but I feel like it's quite relevant. The, oh, but we needed an actor where we could do the flashback and have them not be disabled or have that really annoying dream sequence where they realise they hate their disabled body before they ultimately decide to kill themselves because so many of these Hollywood stories are, oh, shit, you're disabled. Well, it's going to be a dead, we're going to have a euthanasia ending to this story because we never tell other versions of the disabled story. So, um, God, I am being political. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, I, just, I just think, oh, where was I going? I rambled on that and went off on one. Nah, I've lost it. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's Ooh, fine. I talked myself into a little political knot there. You that's made right. some really, really uh, valid points, though, obviously. I'll, I'll trust your listeners to pick out the good bits. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they will. I do want to talk about that play, though. I, I just thought that certainly in 2014, before the world exploded, which I feel like mm -hmm. happened two years later, it was, it was, I mean, it was of its time, but it was, it was great. Um, what was your experience like working with Billy Piper and doing a political play? Oh my God, I love Billy so much. She's such an awesome person. She's somebody I would love to be friends with in real life. Like she's just a really cool woman. I enjoyed it. It was interesting though, because it was incredibly contemporary for the time, mm. which in my opinion, and actually you, you've touched on it, it then dated incredibly quickly. As soon as all the phone hacking stuff was out of the press, it suddenly felt like, oh, we've done that. I mean, nothing's been resolved in real life. The phone hacking scandal continued and you've got um, uh, Prince Harry, for example, taking things through the court that are related to that story yeah. even now. Um, but it's interesting that when you do do something that is so anchored in the now, as soon as the now is then... Um, it's gone. Whereas if, for example, you take something a little bit more like, you know, Shakespeare's work where broader brush strokes and characters are archetypal, it's much easier to kind of find a way to bring it back and make it relevant to now. Um, so it's interesting that I think often it's about stories and how much distance we have from telling them. Do you think an element of the way that it dated quickly, though, is because so much has happened since? And actually, had we had a more placid uh, five, six years since that play, it, it might not have dated so quickly. Yeah, possibly. And I think actually it's not the play itself that dated so much as the media and everybody's conversations 
moved on and changed. There was another scandal. There was another drama. There was a, a another something in the press. And so the fact that people's mobile phones and messages were being listened in on, you know, really, I think had sort of been sidestepped. And it's interesting, though, that the there are some micro stories within that play that um, maybe the ones that are slightly less anchored to celebrity, so they've got a bit more of an everyman feel to them. Like, for example, the parents of the girl who was murdered, whose phone was, you know, hacked into by the press, and they listened to this, you know, innocent young woman's uh, voicemail messages, and and she was a victim of crime. That you could probably tell that story now, and people would still find that really emotionally moving and abhorrent because the idea of privacy or, or that kind of um, vulnerability and victimhood, um, they could see how it would pertain to them. But I think as soon as stories are anchored in celebrities who are very much famous and of their time because their names become synonymous with an era like Marilyn Monroe or Tom Hanks even or, you know, it's like you associate them with certain periods that maybe it anchors it now kind of social timeline slightly too much so that when you've moved on um, and the names of the names have changed in real life but in the story you're telling the names are anchored in a particular time that's where it starts to feel like oh it was of then but actually on on the other hand I think something that the national does so well is having that perspective of something that is happening in the now oh, massively. in a way in yeah. a way that other art struggles until we're a few years down the line from when something happened. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I think it was quite amazing that the release of the play, we were timing with um, the end of the court case and Mm. the very ending of the play was actually being, you know, rewritten up to the 11th hour to match whatever the legal requirements were regarding which way the court case actually swung. So, it's interesting from that point of view of actually it's probably the most contemporary piece I've ever been in or contemporary piece of commentary I've ever been in. Um, and from that point of view, and even actually just because the court case dragged on and on, our rehearsals were extended and extended and extended and they had to start building in days off because there was a danger of us actually over-rehearsing you know, because the court case had run over by, I don't even, can't even remember how many weeks, but had run over by weeks. So we were in that rehearsal room again, but the play from our point of view was pretty much, you know, rehearsed to the point of we are, you know, ready to go. Um, And sort of, you know, rather than pretending we had invisible audiences to kind of do runs in front of, it was kind of like, right, how can we eke out this rehearsal process so it'll end and still feel fresh at the same time as the court case is done and we can actually start performing. Yeah. I can't, I just can't believe it six years ago. I remember, I remember seeing it so vividly and just thinking it was so contemporary and now we're in 2020 already and well, nearly 2021. But it's going to be interesting because with the whole COVID thing for 2020, I watched, um, and it was kind of a play, but it was filmed, um, a horror movie. I recommend it. It was called Host and it's a horror film that plays out over Zoom. And so you've got basically this group of friends who are in isolation and they're on a Zoom call and they're doing a seance and it all goes berserk and I actually recommend people watch. But in terms of something being contemporary and of the now, it would be very interesting to see how that 
goes once one day in the future, maybe when any of us ever go outdoors again, how that then translates to that kind of idea. So there's going to be, I think, some interesting storytelling from now that'll be interesting to see how it translates into the future or doesn't it? Because, you know, if it's about COVID and COVID is over or we've moved on to the next pandemic or whatever is around the corner, you know, will those productions still be current or will they be seen as historical and of the moment? Yeah, and there's there's so much that's being streamed and, and made for at-home consumption now. So it's it could almost be a medium of its own from, from now on. Yeah. Um, you've been very busy during lockdown with your Pirate and the Parrot series. Yeah. <laughs> um Tell, tell me tell me about that. My circumstances with lockdown, there'll be some people that can relate to it, but basically my husband and I had a more intense lockdown than the average Joe blog on the street because my husband has an autoimmune condition. He's not dying, which is important to make clear because the way COVID has been sold to us is that everybody vulnerable or everybody that's killed by the virus had a pre-existing condition and were kind of on their way out anyway because, you know, they were either elderly or whatever and a lot of that's myth like my husband is not dying but he has a condition that requires management and we manage it and yes every flu season there's a little bit more of a risk but you know statistically the flu is not as likely to kill him as say for example COVID which if he caught it you know and it and it goes awry um, leads to a cytokine storm and a cytokine storm is very similar to what happens if you get sepsis or something else in the body that my husband is at higher risk of. So we were having to protect him because he's more vulnerable. But I do feel it's important people understand vulnerability does not equate to dying or already dead. So, you know, it's not like he's got five months left and we're buying him extra time. He's actually normally fine and managing it, but COVID is a risk we must mitigate against. So we were shielding, which was um, very tough and also we felt very forgotten by the government and society who essentially just went, bye-bye, guys, you're indoors now, good luck. And we were indoors in our two-bedroom apartment in Birmingham together for 20 weeks we did all up before that was lifted, but we'd hit week nine and we were stressed off our nut. We were doing one another's head in Mm. and... We'd, all our work had gone out the window. I was meant to be in New York doing um, Cyrano de Bergerac, which would have been a blast. That's all sort of on hold with a big question mark. And so work had gone out the window. Gareth had lost job um, jobs because he's also a stand-up comedian as well as an actor, so gigs had vanished. So we had financial stress, all of the things that a lot of your listeners will understand. But we also had the can't actually leave the property at all. So food was being delivered to the front door. We were, you know, it was was proper isolation. Anyway, many years ago, we'd done a lovely children's play uh, called Pirate and Parrot, which is the world's smallest pirate, me, and uh, the world's largest parrot, my husband, who basically form an unlikely friendship on this teensy little island um, in the non-specific ocean because he just wants a pirate whose shoulder he can sit on, but he meets so much discrimination. And, you know, she just wants gold because she's greedy and, 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 you know, lots of fun to play. And um, we'd, that had been designed for us to do sort of small regional touring, which 
We did, and we loved the play, but small regional touring where you're packing up and packing down, we were busting a gut. And with Gareth's health and my size, it was just such hard work to be acting, unpacking the set, setting it up, packing it down. And as much as we loved it, it was like, this is actually physically killing the two of us. We, we, we can't keep doing this. So we put the play to bed and it was literally in our storage cupboard because where we were storing it at a local theatre, um, we were inconvenienced at the time, but now realise we were super lucky. They were like, yeah, you can't store your stuff here anymore. You're going to have to take it home. And we were like, mumble, 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 fuck, I wish we could store it there. It's going to take up so much room. So, But we'd brought it home literally two weeks before lockdown happened. Gareth was like, well, what if we, what if we just do Pirate and Parrot and tell stories with Pirate and Parrot and film it and put it on the web? So we literally, with our friends, uh, Red Earth Theatre, who helped us create the original show, have done eight storytelling episodes of Pirate and Parrot and their adventures, which we framed at, in, partly in terms of the truth of we're two unemployed actors locked in our house. We we're going to make up stories for you. And we, yeah, produced a couple of episodes, well, eight episodes of um Pirate and Parrot and it was such a laugh to do and what was lovely is because we've got um in the living room we've got a big um patio door window and the kids that live in the apartment block would come and stand in the window on the other side of the glass and watch us do the play filming it and they just loved Pirate and Parrot and so um, you know, they'd be rocking up, knocking on the window, yelling up at us, when's Pirate coming out? When's Pirate coming out? And I'll be like, I'm still editing it. You know, the musician's still giving us a soundtrack for it. I'm subtitling it. Would you just wait? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so that was actually quite sweet. But we're looking at developing that further because um, we just really liked the premise and we think that there's a lot of scope that once it expands beyond our kitchen and if we can increase the production values a little bit. I actually don't want it to get too shiny. I want it to be mm. something children can imagine is within their own reach and storytelling. Um, I'd love to introduce other disabled characters and really create uh, a genuine family-friendly, edgy show, funny, uh, with lots of different characters that visit and the physicality of those characters um, can be very different or maybe their sensory needs or, or, but it's not talked about. It's just naturally there in the same way that we're there in the real world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're looking at developing that further, but oh, I just, uh, you know, the reason I can tell you I like it as well is because I'm able to watch an episode that I've spent all day editing and still watch it more than once and have a giggle. That, that is massive. That's when I realised it wasn't crap. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I've realised, oh, no, I really, I'm into this because. That's a good yeah, sign. Because I can do that, yeah. Mm. Um, tell me about where you were with uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. You were meant to be going to New York. So how did all that pan out? Were you in the run at the Playhouse as well? Yep, I did the run at the Playhouse. We and when finished did that close? That was February. Mm -hmm. So the, the job had finished. Yeah. They were rehearsing their next production, which was a seagull. Uh, was it? It was a Chekhov. I think it was the seagull. Um, but we'd moved on just at that point and then everything went kaput and New York got moved and then it got moved again. And in theory, it's moved again. 
But when you look at what's happening in America at the moment, who knows? Um, basically, this has taught me to be incredibly fluid with my life. <laughs> and, um, I mean, but as an actor, you learn not to get excited about anything until you've signed some paperwork usually. It's it's why um, I've, I've been acting longer than my husband and he was, when we got together, he was still at the stage that he'd tell everybody about every audition that came through where I'd be like, eh, eh, just wait. <laughs> Well, wait till something's on paper. Wait yeah. till you've rocked up on set, you know, because so many things can bubble up. But that's a watch this space type thing, I think, mm. for Cyrano. So what? how far along were you with, with, with those plans? Were you kept in the loop or did you just get one, one phone call and that was it? What What was the process? We were kept in the loop through email. We weren't given every directional change, but... I, nothing, none of it felt like a surprise. I think watching the news and really getting the vibe from what was happening in the States, maybe it was also a little bit, I mean, I don't, I don't know when COVID, I mean, well, they said they were, you know, their dates for when COVID was here, um, I think are a little bit out just because our experiences are cast in December, January and February. We were a cast of 18 people and three cast members lost parents during the run, which is statistically really unusual and could never say what it was, wouldn't even want to speculate because we're talking about people's families and lives, so I wouldn't want to um, speculate. But I can just say that it was odd and we very much learnt to appreciate and value health on that show generally, as well as a lot of the cast, you know, got ill in London and, and, you know, it's just, I think that show made us generally appreciate health and privilege health. So the the first uh, UK confirmed cases were the week of the 29th of January. Um, But it's interesting, you're not the first person to say to me that they they have experienced other potential cases before that date. Well, it was just statistically unusual. Mm. You know, like I've never been in a cast that has... I mean, I'd been in productions and things where maybe there'd been a family issue of some sort, but to have three family members pass away um, and then sort of quite a virulent illness run through the cast generally, whatever was underlying it just made us realise that health has to come first. Like, you know, I don't care how profound art is, if we're killing ourselves to do it, you know, you have to really, you have to really wonder what's, you know, what the value of it is. I weirdly didn't feel surprised that mm. COVID then came here. And, and I mean, at one point I remember making a joke about, oh, Shakespeare had loads of, you know, theatre cancelled because of the plague. This just makes me feel like a proper thespian. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I think it's just actually, you know, we got a, well, we've been really comfortable, haven't we, for a long time with a lot of our technology and our antibiotics and you know, it's just the world is an uncertain place and you've got to be fluid. Yeah. Given that it was 100 years and it was just not on anyone's radar that no. it was going to, it just didn't feel real. Um, no. But it's interesting what you say about making jokes, actually. I think there is that element of COVID comedy that we all had before it got serious. I know my other half did it, was doing a, a mini tour in January. And the first few nights, he went out wearing a mask as a joke. And then and then we had the first UK death and it was like, okay, can't do that anymore. Now it's a dress rehearsal. Yeah, it's um I mean I remember oh, look, you know, 
people can judge me. <laughs> it's fine. I know that I am not a perfect human being, but having a moment of glee that Chinatown was so empty, I had the restaurant to myself and it was all uncrowded and loads of space because, you know, foolish racist people were avoiding Chinatown because of the virus that had gone around in China. And I was like, great, dim sum is all mine. Like, I, I love it here. And, and you know, eating in this restaurant feels like a, a an act of great charity. And, you know, it was just, um, yeah, in the beginning, people, I don't know. People, it was a very British thing in a way, I suppose. Yeah, and also, too, I think now my background is Greek-Australian. And I think culturally, the Greeks are very much, you feel ill, you lie down. Like, you know, oh, you, you really look a bit tired. You should have a nap. Like at least my, my Greek side of the family were always like, you know, very much kind of, oh, you know, don't push yourself. Don't, don't, don't put it out there. You're not looking too great. You should rest. Rest. Rest is important. You know, um, don't read in the dark. You'll go blind. Don't sit on a, a cold step, Kirana. You'll get um, you'll get piles, you know, like they were always like, help, 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 help. And, and um, yeah, have some more garlic. And uh you know, so my upbringing had always slightly been like, oh, you're not very well. You better have a lie down and better rest and better not push it. Whereas I always feel like the British thing is, oh, you, your head's about to fall off. Go to work. Better yeah. show up at your desk. Better, <laughs> you know, better look interested. Look busy. Don't be productive. Don't be too productive, but, but look busy. And um, I think, you know, when COVID kind of came around, that's actually a really unhealthy attitude to have where actually it's like you're a bit run down you kind of need to be like dude lie down and relax let your body deal with it don't push it um so i think this whole kind of soldiering on blitz spirit maybe did not help us in the beginning when we should have gone the other way of oh we're all a bit ill everyone just relax lie down let's sleep this off you know and i think that um you know with covid that sense of oh you know boris is going to soldier on he won't die he's not lazy he's going to go back to work as soon as he can um and i mean even the way some people are talking about all of us that are currently unemployed oh they're loving it they're loving their furlough they're getting too comfortable with furlough um i think rishi at some point said and it's like are you serious every human being wants to contribute and be productive and valuable in some way like it is very very rare to find somebody that is genuinely reveling in a corner on a life on welfare or benefits going oh i've put my 60 quid away today oh i don't have to work oh gosh life is so amazing i don't care that smoked salmon is beyond my financial reach i'm i'm loving it here in my my hole of depression where I can pretend a great effort to have a bad back just so that my neighbours think that, you know, I've got this free car and you just go, that is not the real world. And if that is somebody's actual modus operandi, then the dude does have some kind of impairment, like seriously, that he's just undiagnosed. Like if that's how you're going to tackle being a human being to, to feign being broken so that you can avoid everything and, and get government benefits, then I'm sorry, you do have a problem and you deserve those benefits. <laughs> I'm cynical. I just, well, no, I'm not cynical. I'm the opposite of cynical. I'm, I'm a positive person that believes everyone just wants to belong and contribute. And I, I just think sort of that Tory line that, oh, no, everyone's inherently lazy and, and they just don't want to work is the myth, not the, not the rule. I guess that's just my socialist view on things. Um, I'm actually totally not a radical lefty and I sometimes come out with things that sound slightly fascist. So. 
<laughs> I, I didn't I didn't get the impression that you were a radical lefty at all. Good. I like um, to think of myself as reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where Where is the reasonable party? That's what well, I want to know. That's what I want to know, because even with the whole Black Lives Matter thing, I can't believe there's a debate about it in America. Like, to me, it seems completely reasonable that people of African-American heritage don't want to be shot or abused by the police. How is that even like, why is there even a counter argument? It's going to be interesting in the States as well. You just, everyone's, well, not everyone, maybe just not all the right people have guns. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a debate for another podcast. I know. Um, not necessarily a musical theatre one. <laughs> <laughs> we need to sing about it. That'd be the thing. It'd be yes. like, yes. Yeah. I feel like one when it's all done, when you know, when when eventually they get gun control and come to their senses, there'll be a musical mm. about it. Yeah, and then there'll be a musical about climate change, because <laughs> that'll be our next big hurdle. If if we survive to to make a, a musical about yeah, it, yeah, if we if we survive to sing about it, <laughs> yeah, which hopefully we will. <laughs> In our new underwater world. Oh um, yeah! Oh my god, that'd be an awesome musical. Our new underwater world. You get to do all the gobo lights and all the mermaids and oh, that'd be brilliant. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Um, and let's let's touch base when things are back to normal and we can hear about what you're doing post lockdown. Yeah, maybe one day when I act again. Although that being said, I, maybe it'll be like you know, hey, I'll just take you out. You know, pirate and parrots made multi millions. I'm selling you know billions of children's pirate themed pajamas and merchandise. Well, there we go. Well, let's do that. <laughs> But also, uh, fingers crossed for everything with Serena de Bergerac. Um, oh, cheers. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, well, I guess what will be, will be. Yeah. Did you have a theatre? Did you know where you were going? Um, yeah, we were going over to BAM, so the Brooklyn Academy of Music. So that was all good and set up and good to go. And, you know, when it got moved the first time, I was a bit excited because I was like, yay, we'll do Christmas in New York. And who knows, things are just pending. But... I mean, it's a great play, though, like, you know, and James McAvoy's awesome in it and, like, the cast are phenomenal and it was so um, modern the way that it was using spoken word and language that it was always a joy to do, always a joy. So I'd love to be able to do that again because it deserves um, a bigger viewership. But what is great was um, that it, it got picked up as part of um, the National Theatre Live, you know, where you do the cinematic screenings so yeah, at least you know it does exist out there in a digital form so we'll just wait to see till kind of reconvene in the real world well i hope that happens very quickly for you cheers thank you so much for doing this we'll chat again soon yay big love bye that's it for this week thanks so much to kirana and to wayne perry for connecting us Next time on the podcast, I'll be speaking to Susie McKenna, Associate Director at Kiln Theatre in London, and whose wife, Sharon D. Clark, won the Olivier for Best Actress on Sunday. If you're enjoying Series 5 of the Backstage With podcast, then please subscribe and leave us a rating and a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Until next week, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>